Welcome to the On-Premise IT Roundtable, the only show that's both on topic and on location. Today's episode is sponsored by our partners at SolarWinds. SolarWinds is geek-built, developed by network and systems engineers who know what it takes to manage today's dynamic IT environments. Today's episode is a special IT Origins interview with Leon Adado, one of the head geeks at SolarWinds. We recorded it in the luxurious Gestalt IT offices in Hudson, Ohio. We talked about Leon's start in IT through teaching and desktop standardization, and when the term single pane of glass entered the IT lexicon. It was a great interview, and I think you'll enjoy. All right, so Leon, let's just jump right into it. Give me a sense of your IT origin story. How long have you been in the field, and how did you get your start? So I've been in IT for 30 years. I focused on monitoring for about 20 of those 30 years. My degree, full disclosure, I have no actual training or background in anything remotely IT. My degree is in theater, (laughs) uh, NYU, undergrad drama, Tisch School of the Arts, Greenwich Village, 1985 to 89. Woo! Go... Bobcats fighting, yeah, the fighting, the fighting violence. I think it was the fighting violence. It was it was very eighty five to eighty nine Greenwich Village. So that was my degree. And coming out of college, I discovered that the world didn't need one more short Jewish nebishy looking actor who wasn't nearly attractive enough to be an ingenue and not nearly as buff enough buff enough to be an action hero. So after being a temp secretary for about two and a half years. I sort of liked tinkering with things. Even though my training is in theater, I spend a lot of time in the technical side of it, doing lighting and light boards and computerized light boards were just coming out at the time. So that, along with the temp work that I was doing, showed me that, hey, computers are kind of a thing. This is in 1980. (laughs) This is 89. And so I got my first job at a training company, which at the time, to be a software trainer, a computer trainer, really required two things, uh, breathing and a suit. And one was optional, actually. And a lot of the classes were taught by what I affectionately call green sock, blue sock people. You know, they don't know that they're wearing two different socks and it doesn't really matter. They can talk bits and bites, but they can't actually put a sentence together. So I was the flying pink unicorn of training because I was pretty much coming at it from the same perspective as the people in the class. I didn't know paradox the week before I taught it. I didn't know, you know, DOS basics or word perfect or whatever. And so my process for five and a half years was show up on Monday, install the software, play around with it, Wednesday start writing the manual, get the first draft of the manual kind of down by Friday, come in Monday, teach the beginner class of that class, revise the manual on Tuesday, and then just throw it into the pile. And once you did the beginner class and you did it like five or six times, you had enough questions in class to say, oh, that should be in the intermediate class. And then you build the intermediate class. I did that for about five and a half years for various training companies around the Cleveland area. And then I was ready to stop being a trainomatic um, (laughs) because the reality was at that time, we're talking now mid-90s, I could have taught a four-hour Windows Basics class twice a day, every day, seven days a week, and never satisfied the demand. Wow. It just, you know, there was something unintuitive about a mouse and whatever, and people were nervous about it. So it just got tiring after a while. And I had learned so many really cool things from the questions people asked in class. And I wasn't, again, I had no airs about, you know, well, I I have to pretend I know this. Like, I didn't know anything. And I was (laughs) happy to say I didn't know anything. So people would say, hey, how do you do this thing, mail merge from a database? Or whatever. like, I have no idea, but that sounds like an awesome question. Yeah, let's find out. Let let me find out about that. I'll get back to you after break or whatever. So after five and a half years of that, I was ready to start doing more. So I got into desktop support. And worked my way up the IT food chain in the larger organizations in Cleveland, from desktop support to server support to, you know, networking. And then I fell into desktop standardization. There was a big project. I was at Nestle at the time. And they were standardizing all the, you know, machines to the same operating system, same install, sort of the beginning of um, roaming profiles, like those didn't exist before and all this stuff. So I was, you know, figuring out what software they're using and how to get it installed on a server and how to make it, you know, server-based instead of, you know, each machine had to be installed as a custom work of interpretive dance. And what, what kind of scale was involved here? That was about 300 machines in the Cleveland office. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the U.S. headquarters was about 10,000 machines. And I wasn't part of the whole group, but I was 
working with them. Okay. So I did that, and that got me into a little monitoring tool called Tivoli. Tivoli had just been bought out by IBM, and they were still doing their own little show, Tivoli, uh, Planet Tivoli, and they were still their own thing. And so Nestle had bought that tool, but not trained anybody about it. Um, they were sold, as so many modern tools are sold. Somebody told them, oh, no, you just install it, and it runs by itself. You never need to do any support or any maintenance <laughs> or anything like that. Making matters worse, they had three different teams using the tool, one for software distribution, one for inventory, and one for actual systems monitoring. And each team was making changes to the core framework without telling the other team. So it was awesome. And they needed, yeah, really, just you know, holding wow. your head, you know, SMH. <laughs> so after two years and the investment just going nowhere and not working particularly well, they said, hey, Leon, here's the agreement. We're going to, on our dollar let you learn how to use this stuff and you're not going to leave. How's that sound? Like, ah, okay. So, you know, I learned a lot about it, got the U.S. installation working with a team of about six people. And they said, hey, this was so much fun. Let's do it. Let's take this global. Let's go for the worldwide tour. And so they moved my family and I to Switzerland. And we were there for about a year. And we set up Tivoli for... 250,000 systems in 5,000 locations around the globe. Wow. So there was that. And that was the beginning of my monitoring career. And at that point, I was already realizing that monitoring itself is a best a heterogeneous, not a homogenous solution. You need multiple tools. No single tool is going to do everything you need. Around about 2003, I started using Tivoli for a different company. They wanted to build a monitoring as a service. And so I started doing that. Um, and we built it out of SolarWinds. And, you know, as I moved from company to company, the typical two to four year migration, migratory pattern that IT people have, I would learn other tools, whether it was Patrol or OpenView or Nagios or whatever it was. You know, but Tivoli always held a special place in my heart. It was, you know, it was at the lower end in terms of cost. It was at the higher end in terms of usability. And it had this insanely active user community. You know, you go on the IBM forums and it's like, it's broke. Help me fix it. Here's the fix. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> like that's the entire, you know, and on uh, thwack.com, I found a community of people who not only talked about it's broke, help me fix it, but also, Hey, I'm, I'm setting up a router. I'm not really a router guy. And what are these ACLs? Can someone, Oh, here's a tutorial here. Let me help you. And it's not the, the forum leaders. It's just other people. And then there was these conversations about, you know, who's the greatest starship captain. And, <laughs> you know, what's your favorite color? Blue. Ah, you know, like all these, the universe forum questions. Yes, it was it was amazing. So I got really involved in that and coincidentally at that time I was working for another company that was use, that was creating a monitoring as a service offering and uh, I was leading that project and it was built out of um, SolarWinds. And so I had found some rather creative ways around some of the shortcomings that SolarWinds had. All software has it. And so I posted it and that got a lot of attention. And then around the same time SolarWinds started playing with the idea of doing a yearly convention. Originally, they wanted to do an uh, in-face, you know, come-in convention, and that idea didn't take off. So they said, we're going to do an online one. We're going to do a completely online, free, no travel, no sign-up, no registration convention. Who wants to do a talk? Well, I'm an attention whore. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I'll talk about anything. Here we go. So I put in a couple of ideas, and they said, sure, do them all. (laughs) All right. So they flew me down there, and I did these two these two talks pre-recorded, and what I didn't know it was my interview for, before my interview. It was like they were saying, hmm, this guy writes. He's got his own blog, a couple of them. He seems to be fairly outgoing. He's not afraid to be up in front of people. Mm, we have, you know, this head geek thing. Let's Let's think about him. And so Patrick Hubbard and Lawrence Garvin, were the head geeks at the time, and they and Tom LaRock. And so they talked to me about it, and I talked to some of the other staff, and, you know, they said, okay, great. You know, <laughs> um, so, and it honestly, when I told my wife about the job, she said, and do they know that you'll do this for free? <laughs> do, they, do they understand that Those you would... Those fools. They would pay to... Wait, wait, wait. Let me make sure I get this straight. You get to play with software before anyone else gets to. You then get to stand on stage in public and brag about how you get to play with software before anyone else gets to. You get to write, 
you know, as much as you want, whenever you want, you get to make goofy videos. Like, did they just make a, they say, Leon, what's a Leon job? And they, <laughs> so it really is like perfect. So, I mean, I, that was just that was going to be my next question is how do you define the role of head geek? But it sounds like. Well, that's, that's sort of the functional, like how I see it. Really, the head geek role, technical evangelist is probably a more accurate term, mm-hmm. you know, technical marketing, whatever. But really, it serves three main functions. The first one is externally facing, you know, cheerleader evangelist, right? And the great part about it for me is that I don't have to sell a thing. You know, the shtick is, hey, monitoring is amazing, and you can do incredible things for monitoring, and it's good for your company, and, oh, by the way, the company I work for makes some really good stuff, but that's not important. (laughs) What's important is that you understand that monitoring is really good for you, and you should do some. So that's the, you know, the the rah-rah piece. The internal piece is I turn around back inside, and I'm also the voice of the customer, both because I was a customer and because I get to interact with customers. And say, you know, as new features are being proposed or new ideas are being developed or new, you know, workflows, without having to worry about NDAs or tipping our hand or whatever it is, the head geeks serve as that internal, you know, let me look at that with my customer hat on. Mm, that smells kind of BSE. Let's try something a little deeper. Or, oh my gosh, take my money now. Or, you know, <laughs> you know you've got, it's really those are the only two binary options, right? There's no in between. There's no spectrum. No, yeah. no, no. So we can do that. We're sort of a safe space for developers. And then the third piece is what I affectionately call the edutainment, whether it's giving conference talks or doing SolarWinds Lab or any of those things, getting up and solving a real problem. So, you know, it's not, hey, we have this piece of software and let me show you how to use it. It's, don't you hate it when your router won't help with NetFlow and you can't configure it? Let's talk about how to do that. And I always tell people that, you know, when you watch this old house, you're not thinking about, I need to buy some craftsman tools. And yet, every tool on this old house is craftsman tools. But that's just what happens to be in Bob Via's toolbox. You know, that's just happenstance. So I'm talking about NetFlow, and the tool I happen to have is, you know, SolarWinds NTA. Okay, great. But it's not because NTA is the, NTA is the only tool. It just happens to be the tool I have in my toolbox. So we get to do that also. So like I said, that edutainment piece. So... Clearly, you're no stranger to monitoring. Uh, SolarWinds, well-known within the space. I I find it refreshing to hear that the admission that not all software can be all things to all people. I think that's obvious and also shockingly hard to get out of someone that works for a company. My question is, when is the first time the term single pane of glass entered your ear holes? It existed. It clearly existed before I started in IT in 89. Okay. You had old, old tools like Forest for the Trees, which ran, was on a single three-and-a-half-inch floppy and was supposed to look at all the data on your hard drive, whether it was spreadsheet data or database data or whatever it was, and sort of put the pieces together and give you a single pane of glass. You know, that, that idea has been around. I'd have to, you know, do some Internet research, but I really do believe that it was long before. So almost as soon as I came on, you know, Sidekick which was a wonderful tool. I still consider loading DOS 4.1.1 and WordPerfect 5.0 and <laughs> Lotus 1.2.3 just to see how fast it would run on my current machine and Sidekick and QEMM because you need memory management. Sidekick, the idea was that you could flip between multiple programs simultaneously. It was a task switcher and you know the term came in even there. Do you feel like there's been any inflation in the use of that? I mean, it, it, from my perspective, the reason I bring it up is it seems like that term engenders a very visceral response mm. from the Tech Field Day audience uh, when they hear it. Um, and so I, I was just wondering from your perspective if there's been any kind of inflation in the use of that term or is it just always going to be present whenever someone wants to talk you know, in grandiose terms about a software monitoring or, or any kind of software dashboard? Really? Right. Well, the challenge, the challenge is that it's it's – incredibly descriptive of what people are trying to get at. They're trying to give you a single view and a single pane of glass just seems to roll off the tongue. It's great sales speak, whatever. I think the reason why Tech Field Day has such a visceral reaction is because they don't have to deal with object-oriented as a visceral thing to react from <laughs> or, you know, tabs versus spaces or, you know, some, oh, Lord. <laughs> or some of the other things. You know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, sort of shorthand. I, I think that when... I think part of the problem isn't the term, it's that the person using the term clearly has no idea 
the history, the implications, the clicheness of it. I think that you or I or any of the Tech Field Day folks could get away with saying single pane of glass with just the right amount of irony and yet also sincerity and, and get away with it, not too often, because mm. then they would just light you up. <laughs> but the reality is that it's hard to get away from because it's so darn descriptive. It's so darn perfect for what vendors like SolarWinds and everyone. And it doesn't need to be a monitoring company. It can be you know, any other software solution. But when I'm giving you everything that you want to see right now, what else do you call it? Today's podcast is sponsored by SolarWinds. SolarWinds just released their first tech publication experience at orangematter.solarwinds.com. There, find insights on how to monitor and troubleshoot your IT infrastructure on-premises and in the cloud, from up-and-coming industry peers to some very well-known industry leaders. Drop by to see what they're saying about the latest and greatest in the world of technology. Since you started your career... What's been the biggest change that you've seen, uh, either in monitoring or just in IT in general? I mean, you know, quite a bit probably from the mid-'80s. Right, right. Yeah, and my first computer, which had uh, 720K. That's all you need. Of RAM, right. It's, you know, 360. Yeah. (laughs) Bill Gates said, that's all you need. You're really just being selfish at that point. Right. (laughs) Really. Now you're just showing off. The biggest change... So I'm going to answer it twice because why answer a question once if you can answer multiple times? So there's been a, you know, the convergence of functionality, whether or not it's on your cell phone or it's on a server or it's in the cloud or whatever it is. We've talked about convergence for a really long time. I do remember the compact American Tourist or Gorilla Luggables. They called them portables, and, and the joke was they're portable if you were Arnold Schwarzenegger or the American tourist or gorilla, you know, like you could carry it around, which came with two five-and-a-quarter-inch floppies and a, you know, keyboard that was on a telephone cord and a red gas plasma screen and a phone. They put a phone on there because, like, the idea of convergence has been there forever, that I have these separate functions, but they're all transistors. They're all circuit boards. And what if I could get all the circuit boards into one place? That's been around for a while. But getting that to happen and also getting it to happen from a conceptual basis, there was a great part of a keynote that Martin Casado gave a couple of years back where he talked about the idea of convergence and the idea of functions moving from hardware to software. And it was in the context of networking, in context of like the big metal box that you would buy and you'd stick it on a rack and you'd do things, and now it was becoming software. So network as code was his point. But he said you can see that in going from a, a Garmin, Nuvi, to, and he holds up his cell phone. He said once upon a time you had to buy a, specific, a specialized box with a specialized circuit board and specialized software that had to be updated in its own way and it used you know, closed market technology to tell you when to turn left and to tell you how to get places. And lots and lots of people had those little boxes in their cars to tell them where to go. Now, all of that functionality is in that little rectangle we keep in our pocket that does all these other things too. That it, it didn't just become miniaturized, it became completely subverted into software. So that, from a technical standpoint, the idea of convergence and the idea of functional convergence into software where everything eventually becomes just code and doesn't need to be have a discrete hardware component um, I think is the biggest technical shift that I've seen. But there's been this other shift which is not done by any stretch of the imagination. You know, you want to call it the democratization of IT. You want to call it, you know, the rise of DevOps culture. You just want to call it people learning to get along better. That's something else that I saw. When, when I started in, you know, 89, the Crystal Palace, which is what a lot of people called the data center because it had this big glass screen and you saw people in the fishbowl and all the things you needed had to be requested. You had to go up on high to the data center and ask the people in there if you could please, please, please have a report. And in a couple of weeks you would get it. And, you know, then it was, you know, don't bother me anymore unless you need something else. And everything basically was a, pro- was a software project. You know, a report was a software project and, you know, a set of data was a software project, etc. 
I was coming in at the very tail end of that era, PCs were already on the rise. And that was becoming a great, again, democratizer, because all of a sudden people were saying, oh, no, 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 I have, I have a PC on my desk. Don't touch it. Just leave it alone. I know I have a terminal, but I can do some stuff myself, and I'll do it. And some of the real you know, cutting-edge folks were doing that. And then PCs were moving into the workplace en masse, and they became an IT supportable thing, and, and so on and so forth. I don't need to repeat 35 years of IT, you know, IT history. The point, though, is that even in those early days when we're coming off of the data center mainframe VAX environment into PCs and sort of servers as we sort of knew them then with Novell and things like that, there were still silos. You had the network people and you had the data people and you had the you know, developers. And now we're seeing those lines really blur. We see it a lot in monitoring. That's my perspective on it. Because once upon a time, you had the network and the network had its monitoring stuff. And you had the server folks in the server you know, and they had their monitoring stuff, and the storage had their monitoring stuff, and so on and so forth. And if there was a problem, it was not me, not me, not me, finger-pointing, finger-pointing until finally someone, you know, it was a game of musical chairs, and one chair, would, you know, somebody was left standing, and they had to figure it out. Now, again, with the rise of the DevOps mentality, uh, with the rise of just people, I think, shifting from, you know, I started off in network, but now I'm in application design, or I started off in database, and now I'm in, you know, networking or server, whatever it is, you know, people have moved enough that they have a sensitivity to, nope, problems are multimodal. You know, it's not the network or the database. There's a piece of this that is contributing. I think also cloud, because again, everything is code. The network is code and the database is code and the server is code. And the, you know, the only thing that's not code is the data. And sometimes the data is also, you know, very codey. But anyway, <laughs> the, the idea that, you know, the problem is the problem, and the user is having the problem, and the user doesn't care whether it's you know the storage or the network or the whatever it is. They just want to get back to work again, and more and more people are taking ownership of that concept. They may you know there still may be silos in the company, but they're more semi permeable than they once were. So again, the two things that I've seen change is the convergence, both on a physical technical standpoint and also the philosophical standpoint. And, and actually, I guess, I guess that's the same thing, convergence in terms of work function, that more people are willing to say, yeah, I'm in the network team, but I'm going to go troubleshoot this database issue, or I'm going to go troubleshoot this you know, storage latency problem and see if I can use some of the skills I've learned to bring to bear. So yeah, convergence. Well, that's very much at the heart of kind of the philosophy behind Gestalt IT is that all of these you know, silos are kind of coming together. And if nothing else, people need to know what's going on from a news and media perspective about these industries, if not no, need to know how to work in them at some point uh, or another, or that their work, you know, you know, they're no longer the storage admin, they're mm -hmm. the admin, you know, stuff like that. Um, but, you know, that was a very high-minded, it was very <laughs> aspirational, shall we say. So let's throw some shade. <laughs> what is the current worst trend in IT? The hype cycle has always been there, but I think it's worse. So just the hype cycle in general is the root cause of a lot of this. But the current victims of the hype cycle are Bitcoin and blockchain. Cloud all the things. You know, yes, cloud is incredibly useful. There are certain things that are not going to are not reasonably clouded. And actually SolarWinds did a survey last year and found that of the projects that were moving to the cloud, 20% were moving back. Either because the cost saving, the cost wasn't what they thought it was going to be, meaning it was much more expensive. The security wasn't what they thought the, the thought it was, and they couldn't handle it. The functionality, the performance, wasn't what they thought it was. They're bringing it back. So, cloud all the things, which we see in a lot of companies, is another one. AI and machine learning. First of all, the complete ignorance of what those words mean. The difference between those words, AI and ML. <laughs> it's like. So it's like, you know, like Benefer, right? Like AIML. <laughs> it's just one word. And, and motivated, you know, powered by blockchain in the cloud. Right. Exactly. And there we go. Now we hit we it. It's the, Bingo. Quad, the quadfecta. <laughs> so I, I think that the hype cycle, but the, again, the current victims, um, AIML, which is not, not a thing, uh, but I think that most businesses are, have no use for it. They, they need just a really good algorithm and be done with it. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, uh, you know, so you see, but you see a lot of executives saying, you know, we're going to do this magic thing and it's going to fix all of our stuff. But, you know, we saw it with SOA, software-oriented architecture. You know, I'm just going to buy a box of SOA and then sprinkle it all over here or ITIL or whatever. Like, you know, just sprinkle that crap everywhere. It's going to be great. So um, that's, I, I think, uh, the, the worst trend. Again, the hype is at the root cause, but... I, it's curious you use the word victim, my reading of that is that these are interesting, perhaps worthwhile technologies, but that people are going to get so burned out on these that then they just turn off their ears whenever they hear blockchain on anything. And when you say people, we mean IT people. Yes, yes. Yeah, because the execs are all hot on it um, because it is the new hotness. IT people are tired of trying to, A, figure out what the exec is talking about, B, parse it out for them in functional terms, what it means to our business, then be told, no, no, you don't understand. This is going to be awesome. Somebody on an infomercial told me something. <laughs> so, and, and I do mean victims. Mm-hmm. I do mean that these, these are good technology. Blockchain is a good technology. It does have worth, you know, worthwhile use cases. Um, the same thing for AI. Uh, I just heard this week that um, IBM ran an AI that um, had a debate with a human uh, debate either team or individual, and it was uh, judged by journalists, and the AI won one and lost one. So we're, you know, it, it does have, whether or not that is the perfect use case for it, is immaterial. Mm. The point is, is, it's not nothing. It's not vaporware. But it's not everything. We, we had an interesting uh, talk a couple episodes ago with Ted Dunning of MapR. He's their chief application scientist. And his perspective on AI I thought was very interesting is that it's constantly either aspirational or blasé in that what is the groundbreak – what's the IBM debater of today becomes the boring feature that Google implemented tomorrow. And problem is everyone kind of wants to be in the middle of that. And it's it moves so fast that it's very very tough to be there. Whiplash commoditization. Yeah. Oh wow. It Let's... goes it goes straight from you know. Oh my gosh, we just discovered it to two dollars and thirty five cents per minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like in in seconds, it's like oh code got it. Let's go install a new widget. Here we go. Let's be happy now. We've <laughs> thrown the shade. Yeah. What's the best current trend in IT? I actually think I'm going to go back to the the things that have changed the most. I think that the convergence. Both the workplace convergence, I absolutely believe that the more empathy that we can build for our IT cohorts and beyond, I'll talk about that in a second, um, the better IT is in general and that the more things converge down to, again, the little rectangle in our pocket or the cloud or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. I think the more exciting things we're able to do. Um, I think that commoditization, that fast commoditization is also good. I don't think anybody really enjoyed the six months it took to learn XML and salt <laughs> and all that, only to find that it didn't actually do what they wanted it to do or in the language that they had to use. That was not fun. And I think that you know, quickly going from um, you know, teaching, a, teaching code to recognize objects to you know, getting a little Amazon box that can tell that I'm not a hot dog. The, f- the fact that that happens so quickly means that you can do some really interesting things. The only analog I can think of off the top of my head is stereos. I remember my dad's stereo with the really interesting glowing tubes inside the metal frame. And if one of those tubes didn't glow, then you had to take it apart and know it. And my dad's a musician, so he's pretty, you know, savvy when it comes to that stuff. And there were approximately 8,242 components to his stereo. And then uh, for my bar mitzvah, I got like an all-in-one, you know, turntable, radio, whatever. It's like, there it is. <laughs> you know, and that was empowering because it did exactly what I needed it to do. And I was able to take it places. And then there's the Walkman. And, you know, again, we're talking about not only the miniaturization, but just the ability to take something with you to use in all these different ways. Um, I think that's probably the best trend. Now, the the convergence uh, in terms of not just IT people having empathy, but also having empathy for parts outside IT. One of the things that I talk about a lot and I push a lot is the need for IT folks really to learn about the business. I am not talking about becoming a salesman. I'm not talking about becoming a manager. Nobody wants that. 
if you do want that, that's great. You do you. But most of us love being technical and really are afraid of that moment when we will either because uh, we no longer have the chops, which never actually happens, or because we have been left out of the conversation or whatever, that suddenly we won't be able to keep up. Right? Mm-hmm. We're afraid of that. So we fight against it by remaining as technical as possible. A lot of us do. Learning the business is learning another language. You know, uh, just like you can speak French and Spanish and Hebrew and sign language and Hungarian and Esperanto and Klingon and Elvish, which, you know, very geeky things. Lots of us learn to do that. It's kind of cool. Shakespearean, you know, we go to a Ren Fair. We want to fit in. We <laughs> learn to, you know... Business is no different than that. Business is actually easier than learning to converse with folks at the Ren Fair. I think we we need to do. We've always needed to do that. Um, I have said for a long time there is no such thing as an IT project at all. There are only business projects that have an IT component to them. And if you don't understand that, you're constantly going to be a cross purpose with the people who are actually approving the things that you want to do. You need to learn that when you go into Mahogany Row. Oak Avenue, the C-suite, whatever you want to call it, that nobody cares about the technical anymore at all. Really, it drives down to three things. Can you describe what you want to do in terms of increasing revenue, reducing cost, or avoiding risk to the business, the end? All the other stuff is cute. Nobody wants to hear it. Yeah, that, that's some, been something I've, I've enjoyed reading, kind of like the work of uh, what Keith Townsend does with CTO mm-hmm. Advisor, where I think he does a really good job of bridging those two domains and saying, like, business has a mission. IT can either enable or inhibit that. It needs to enable that, but it's not a purpose unto itself, unless your business, your mission is to deliver IT services, in which case, you know, argue, then it becomes a, a different, a little bit of a different conversation. That, that's a vast oversimplification, but I've enjoyed that that kind of conversation that's been going on. And I'll add a third point: you can either enable the business, you can inhibit the business, or you can be irrelevant to the business. Ooh. And that's the kiss of death, right? Um, and certain technologies will become irrelevant to the business. They will find a way to outsource it. They will find a way to commoditize it. They will find a way, you know, like, that's okay. Again, dad's stereo, my single, you know, my, you know, boombox, right? You know, certain parts of that process became irrelevant, and that's okay. Nobody mourns the loss of the 8,000 component, you know, Bang & Olufsen. They they really like our MP3s. That's, you know, (laughs) I'm all right with that. Um... Technology can become irrelevant. But you as a person who's worked in IT with and have experience in it, if you are doing things to forcibly make the business see you as irrelevant, you have you have quintessentially failed in your overall mission, which is to do really cool stuff. Another reminder that today's episode is brought to you by SolarWinds. They'll be releasing their very own podcast from their head geeks in the coming weeks. You've already met Leon Adato in this interview, so drop by orangematter.solarwinds.com to meet the other head geeks. Where do you see IT and maybe the monitoring field specifically going in the next three to five years? AIML. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, Sorry. Yeah. Right. In the cloud, hyper-converged with... Actually, okay, so joking aside... Ultra-converge. Ultra, ultra-converge, right. All joking aside, I actually think that in addition to monitoring in general, always needing to address the new stuff, you know, monitoring in the cloud, and I'm a big believer, again, heterogeneous environments, right? Not homogenous. It's not all in the cloud. It's not all on-premises. Said it right. Thank you. No problem. It's it's a, some mix of them. Very few companies are 100% one or the other, Almost all the people we surveyed, 8,000 respondents, all had some not only blend of on-prem and in the cloud, but on-prem and in multiple clouds. You know, some the average is two, okay, but and we know which two they are, but <laughs> many of them three. So monitoring specifically needs to recognize that, you know, all of that is a single environment from the perspective of the people supporting it. That, yep, you're right, you got Salesforce, and that is part of your IT environment. And the three ISPs between you and Salesforce are also part of your IT. Yes, that means you have to fix the internet. <laughs> Yay! Well, that's actually what I 
feel is really interesting that I've seen from SolarWinds and other companies like Thousand Eyes or something like that is viewing that path of trend. You know, now that we're not everything's going over MPLS and you kind of give up ownership of large, you know, when you're when you're going to a SaaS, you know, kind of based application or something like that, that that kind of monitoring is is kind of blowing my mind of what I'm seeing in terms of being able to kind of even though you don't own that chain necessarily you have, can have visibility and can right. have actionable insights into that. You can see your path to that service. That's fantastic, right? What if you could also see what other people on the same path or similar paths, what their experience was at that moment at the same time? What if the, that information could be aggregated? You know, uh, you know, we're starting to build a picture of literal, you know, of the internet, not mm-hmm. just of your view of it from your point of origin to where you want to go. So that's an interesting, that's an interesting idea that, that we keep playing around with. But in monitoring the, where we're going is recognizing that you have this multi, you know, location, you know, hybrid environment, etc. And at the same time, the data is all not the data that you're using, not the customer order or whatever it is, but the monitoring data all starts to become more and more related and finding those trends, finding the what um, I first heard charity majors call the high cardinality events. You know, I don't want to know the thing that happens every five minutes. That's, that's old news. Like, yeah, hard drive fail or whatever. I want to know the things that almost never happen but are notable or whatever. How do I find those? Mm-hmm. So looking at all the incoming data, and, and that is where machine learning Maybe artificial intelligence, maybe not. The the dumpster diving through vast quantities of data that are coming at you in near real time and beginning to assemble, you know, hey, this is interesting. We should look at this. You know, those kinds of things. It's not an alert. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not down. We We have plenty of tools that will tell us the thing is up. <laughs> the user's experience of the thing is good. That's really all we care. And, and the thing I'm trying to accomplish is happening. You know, the user's experience of my shoes website is good. The website is up and they are buying shoes at the correct rate that I was expecting them to buy at. I don't care about anything else. I'm selling shoes and they're buying them and it's all good. But there are things happening within the data that may be notable, that may either lead me to say, oh, I didn't realize that that usage pattern was happening. I can capitalize on that. Or, oh, this is an anti-pattern. But it hasn't hurt me yet, but I can immediately start to respond and start to address that. That's where I think monitoring is going, is the ability to apply algorithmic understandings to the incoming data. Then it becomes a game of, can I get all the data I need? And can I get it all in the right place? And can I process it fast enough? And the answer is obviously yes. Yeah, that, that's one of the other things that I've really become aware of is not just, you know, dead is the new oil, drink, your your buzzword bingo game. But that idea is old now. It's a, that's conventional wisdom. What is interesting to me is that not just that it has value or that it's super valuable or that businesses need to, you know, find a way to, to use it, is that there is a timeliness to that to that value as well. And so knowing when it has value is now kind of becoming, you know, it's not dead as the new oil. It's knowing when your data is valuable is the new oil is the new oil. You know, like mm-hmm. that, that to me is, is very interesting too. And that kind of feeds into uh, being able to process it and being able to make it actionable within, you know, uh, that's an IT challenge, certainly. You know, data is the crude. Okay. You know, now we have to learn how to refine mm-hmm. that crude oil effectively and then distribute it to where it needs to go and then use it in the right, you know, are we talking about a, you know, fuel injection system? Are we talking about jet fuel? Are we talking about, like, how are we using our crude resources? And do we have the distribution tools, i.e., whether it's data flows or application front ends or, or back end processing or whatever, or monitoring, you know, whatever it is, to get that, that processed, refined, crude data to where it needs to be. Leanne, do you have any book recommendations for IT practitioners? That's our that's our favorite word, not professionals, practitioners. IT practitioners. And uh, and what are you reading right now? So, recommendations for books. It's interesting. I just um, a few months ago took a bunch of guys who had never really been in IT at all. The most complicated technical thing they used was a flip phone. And in six months, brought them <laughs> generations ahead into <laughs> IT. 
and you know, help them understand what the IT world was in general, and then they picked a path, whether it was uh, system administration, network uh, engineering, or programming. It was a three choice. I used to you know, DBA, but mm-hmm. those were three things I thought were achievable. Very particular group of people who have the ability to learn and assimilate large quantities of data quickly, um, but just had no experience in technology at all. So I took uh, six folks, six guys, it, through that. And so I had to tell them, like, here's re- required reading for you who've never been in IT and really, you know, really out of the game. So what I told them was uh, Accidental Empires by Robert X. Cringely, which gives a fantastic view of how we got here. Still, it's a great history lesson in IT. A lot of fun to read. Uh, you know, one chapter is called Chairman Bill Leads the Happy Workers in Song. <laughs> The chapter that talks about Apple is written like an episode of Bonanza with uh, Steve Wozniak as Hoss. He's the big, (laughs) strong guy, and Steve Jobs is little Joe Cartwright. He's not big Joe. He's always, like, in the shadow trying to prove it. Like, it's amazing. (laughs) That sounds amazing. It was written in the late 80s, early 90s, so it had a particular view of of those organizations, but a good book. So that was the first one. Um, And then the Phoenix Project. I thought that was important. And those are probably the two... Besides the subject specific, I'm currently working my way through Satya Nadella's Hit Refresh. I was a longtime Microsoft hater. Um, I feel that I have earned my hatred. I used <laughs> Windows 286 when it came on uh, 12 five and a quarter inch floppies for free when you got a copy of Excel 1.0. So I, I've used it for a long, long time, and um, it has always been... I remember when Microsoft willfully destroyed GeoWorks, you know, which ran on the 8086, but just got buried under the garbage and never... But it was, in my opinion, a better operating system at the time. I'm old. I'm really old. I remember OS2 Warp. I remember Next. I remember a lot of operating systems, and Windows was not any of those. It wasn't sexy. It wasn't exciting the way that those was. It was the it was the VHS format of computing. <laughs> it, it wasn't the best format. It just is the one that won. And I lived through a lot of years when Microsoft was making bad choices for the users, for the customers, making things more difficult. Uh, whether you want to laugh about Microsoft Bob or Vista, or Windows 8, you know, I mean, it was, it was really hard. There is in my, in my to-do list, I'm sorry, and I take it all back, is the name of the essay. <laughs> uh, I was live blogging the Windows 10 announcement, the Windows 10 desktop announcement, mm-hmm. four years ago, and with my usual Microsoft skepticism, and like, eh, this doesn't mean anything. And even then, when I was listening, the first time I'd ever heard Satya Nadella say anything, and I was like, okay, so he kind of gets it. He kind of understands. They'll never execute on it, but he kind of gets it. And being at my Microsoft Ignite last year and seeing the changes, and, and it's not just that they're embracing Linux. It's not just that they're putting SQL on Linux. It's not just that they're, you know... Which is insane in and of itself. Which, which is insane and wonderful. Yes. I'm just saying that I've run Linux on my desktop for the last 12 years. Um, but it just the, the culture shift, the, the willingness to embrace true innovative ideas... Um, little things and big things, you know, really have caused me to turn around and say, all right, all right, this, this is a Microsoft that I can be comfortable hanging out with. You know, this is a Microsoft that I want to have drinks with. This is a Microsoft that I want to, you know, have on my, like, you know, friends list on social media, that kind of thing. I, I have to confess, yeah, the Satya mania has, had bug has bit me uh, too. I'm a reformed Linux hippie. But uh, used to run like puppy Linux, mm-hmm. like on a USB stick. Microsoft was the evil empire. They wanted to charge me ninety nine dollars when I built my PCs, and that was I, then I couldn't put more RAM into it. So I, I completely uh, uh, get though that it it does seem like a transformed company. Right. So that's you know that's what I'm reading, and uh, let's see. Everything else I'm learning is is obscure and bizarre and religious, <laughs> religiously based. For those people listening, I'm I'm currently learning Masekhet Beitza. So, like, you know, if you know what those words mean, there you go. If you don't know what those words mean, it doesn't matter.
First computer you owned, I heard reference of 720K of memory. Yeah. But was there, was it any it particular was a, box? It or? was an Amstrad. Oh, okay. It was an Amstrad. Um, I don't remember the model. It was a 286. And uh, that was, and I remember getting onto customer support. First customer support call because it would do the memory check and it would come up uh, okay. But I couldn't run some of the programs I wanted that required uh, a meg. And it's all okay. I don't understand. It's okay, but I can't run this. And the tech support person said that's zero K. Zero, <laughs> zero K high memory, zero K extended memory, zero K expanded memory. Like you get, you have none. Oh, and that was like first tech support call ever. That was my first PC. Mm-hmm. I do want to point out that my first compute device was a um, Atari 400, not the Pong thing. The Atari 400 that used uh, cartridges, and I had to write my own printer drivers. <laughs> and it used five and a quarter inch, single-sided, single-density flop, uh, floppy disks. Um, so, yeah, that was it. And I quickly graduated up to a Atari uh, 800, but I never got the 1600. That was my dad's. He had that one. And then I moved to PCs um, from there. And so that was my writing your own print drivers. Yeah, sounds, it sounds like it probably works better than most printers today. It um, it wasn't hard. It was an Epson dot matrix, uh, you know, printer. The funny part, looking back on it, like if I knew today what I if I knew then what I know today, I would say you can't write a printer driver. That's insane. <laughs> You're a theater major. Like what makes you believe that writing a printer driver? But you know, I was on Cleveland Freenet, and somebody said, "Yeah, you just put in this." I mean, it actually wasn't complicated. It was basically a, a basic program. But I had no idea what I was doing. I was I was you know <laughs> effectively cutting and pasting. You know, and and I was going out of the manual, and the manual said, "Yeah, you can write your own printer driver." And here you go. In the days when the printer manual had instructions on writing a printer driver not knowing what computer or OS you were using. It was incredible. It was a heady, incredible time. What do you do when you're not working in IT and writing your own printer drivers many years ago? (laughs) Right. Um, So work takes up a lot of time. Um, I love my job, which is amazing. I love my job, which means I do too much of it. As I said recently, you know, knowing when to walk away from work is possibly the best skill one can develop. And it's one that I've utterly never done. <laughs> um, so in my almost non-existent amounts of spare time, uh, you know, I've got four kids and two grandkids. And so I spend, you know, time with them. My daughter runs a bakery, so I help her. Now, that's IT stuff because it's her website and it's all that stuff. But I also, you know, uh, just help out. I can't cook at all. You will never taste my cooking and you should be happy about that. But I wash a mean dish. So I help out there, and then because I'm Orthodox Jewish and part of the community, a lot of time is spent just learning texts from a religious standpoint. Like I said, when I said those words, Masechet Beitza, it's part of Talmud, and um, there are whole buildings of married guys like me who show up at odd hours of the day and spend a couple of hours learning this or learning that, and they do it, you know, every day of the week. Um, reading in the margins. Reading, yeah, reading in the margins, exactly. So <laughs> that's that's what I spend my time doing. And how do you caffeine if you do? I do caffeine. So um, I met my wife a really long time ago. I met her when I was 16. And she had two brothers adopted from Colombia. And so her, her parents would make trips down to Colombia every year or so. Colombia has no tariff on coffee. You can bring back as much as you want as much as you can carry, don't worry, they'll make more. <laughs> so my girlfriend at the time would say, oh, my parents are coming back from Columbia, and my back would begin to hurt, you know, spot, you know in, in anticipation of the 400 pounds of bags of Colombian coffee beans they'd bring back. So I learned to caffeinate very early on real, like from Colombia, Colombia coffee beans ground and brewed right there. Um, so it is coffee all the way. There's, I don't really drink soda pop. 
no Red Bull, no... As you can tell, I'm a really sedate... I was going to say, you're soft-spoken, so you probably need guy. the caffeine. I, right, no, I, I, I've worked in jobs where they've actually barred me from the coffee machine. Now, do you have... Are you uh, particularly uh, snobbish, I guess is the word, in the way you prepare it? Are you a drip coffee maker, French press, aeropress? No, okay. no, no, no. I mean, we have... Whichever way you We have it. We have a, a grind and brew because mm-hmm. we have the, yeah, the, fresh the coffee beans, beans. Yeah. so I prefer it that way. The, the one thing I draw the line on is instant. Oh, yeah. Cannot... Do it well. It's a thing again in the Orthodox community when you have, you know, Shabbat or the Sabbath, and you can't touch anything with an on-off switch. Brewing coffee is impossible, and straining coffee and all that stuff. So you have to like instant is a way of life for a lot of people, and I just refuse. I brew a giant Yeti thermos of <laughs> coffee right before sundown, like you know, in the minutes before we time it, and I get that coffee into the thermos as fast as I can, preheat it with boiling water and everything, and that will give me reasonably hot water for the next 24 hours. And Leon, who would you like to see answer the IT origins questions? Few answers. I'm going to give you some choices. Uh, the first one is any and all of the head geeks, other head geeks. So that would be Patrick Hubbard, at Fervent Geek on Twitter, Destiny Bertucci, at Des Says on Twitter, Tom LaRock, at Sequel Rockstar. So any one of those folks would be great. I'd also love to see the product manager for the network monitoring side, um, Chris O'Brien, who has the greatest Twitter handle ever, at PacketMagic. <laughs> I would love to see him answer it. Those, those are some of my top choices. And finally, any career advice you'd like to pass on to our listeners? If you're just getting started, I would say understand that um, being a generalist, which a lot of us start off as a generalist, is great. But know that in the near future, you're going to need to choose. You're going to need to pick that thing that you want to focus on. That, you know, if you are this amazing do-all, be-all to everybody thing, um, you're going to be limited in where you can go. It's just IT is too broad. But right now, use the generalist to learn everything about all those other areas Mm -hmm. and then pick that thing and then do it. IT is wonderful and amazing in that it changes so rapidly that if you just wait a little bit, you actually will know more because you got on the trolley at this point and now you're riding the trolley. So it doesn't require everyone to have years of experience or a degree, certainly, or anything like that. If you're not new in your career, if you are experienced in your career, um, share everything. Give it all away. You know, there is nothing that you know that is going to make you more valuable for not having told someone else. In fact, everything that you know is more valuable if you tell someone else. Or another way to think of it is irreplaceable is unpromotable. You will never leave that thing that you're doing if you, do, if you make yourself irreplaceable. And there's going to come a point when you don't want to be doing that thing anymore. You're going to want to do something else. So, you know, share it all. It will only make you more valuable. Empathy. Sprinkle that all over the place. I can't think of a better way to end the interview. Leona Dotto, it's been a pleasure. We'd like to thank the sponsor of today's podcast, SolarWinds. Don't forget to check out their tech publication, Orange Matter. Tune in next week as they unveil the name of their podcast, and who knows, we might even get a sneak peek into their first episode. To subscribe and find more episodes of the On-Premise IT Roundtable podcast, go to gestaltit.com slash podcast. We'll see you next time. So from all of us here at Gestalt IT, have a super sparkly day.